<笑>鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Today's episode is supported by the Institute for National Defense and Security Research in Taiwan, a think tank dedicated to fueling knowledge-based policy analyses and strategic assessments on Taiwan's security. Today we talk with Sylvia Fung, producer of Taiwan's first political drama, Island Nation. 国际桥牌社 We talk with her about her experience working on the show. It looks at Taiwan from the years 1990 to 1994. Sylvia has had a very long career, illustrious career in media here in Taiwan and abroad. We're lucky that she'll be able to share some of her experience and talk about the current challenges the industry is now facing. Although there is more freedom to talk about Taiwan's past within Taiwan, many creative industries rely on China for their revenue. This puts a limit on the kind of topics many media producers are willing to discuss. A lot of people have fear in their hearts about anything political. So, trying to make a political drama would be a no-no thing for a lot of people in the business. In our interview with Sylvia, she will share firsthand experience dealing with these issues, as well as her thoughts about the future of the creative industry in Taiwan and internationally. The interactions between politics, profit, and freedom of speech are a global issue, and this is. The Taiwan Take. I'm your host today, J.R. Wu. Welcome, Sylvia. My goodness, you just finished a busy season.、Uh, the first one for Island Nation. Right. How's that been going?、Uh, it's been a little tough、um, for two reasons. One,、um, money was a problem, so we had spent quite some time trying to find investment. And then production was pretty tough, and then we're trying to get the right platforms to carry the show. I saw the trailer for the show.、Mm-hmm. It looks outstanding.、Thank、I、you. mean, you've got some real good tones in there. The storyline、uh, from 1990 to 1994 that was in former President Li Denghui years,、mm-hmm. and how Taiwan. Evolved into a democracy. Of course, not in that short time, but a lot of things were happening back then and on the world stage. Give us a teaser of the show. Island Nation season one starts from 1990. That was a time of drastic change in the world when the Berlin Wall fell. The Soviet Union also went down. And Tiananmen massacre just took place, and Taiwan just had its first native-born president after more than fifty years. So it was a tremendous time for people who've been through it. Our story starts March nineteen ninety, right before President Li Denghui was to be sworn in. And this was already after martial law had been lifted in Taiwan. I think that would have been 1987. That's right. And the last dictator, the last strongman, Jiang Jingguo, died in 1988. Li Denghui, at the time as vice president, took his place as the acting president. 
But then in February, I think, or March 1990, he was elected by the National Assembly, not by all the people, but indirectly by the National Assembly as the next president. And our story started there. However, I remember you were telling me earlier before uh, we started airing that your audience, some of your focus groups, they watched it and they were laughing. And also there is no hero, one hero in this story. What's going on? Right. If you watch American political drama, there is always this big hero, the president or the secretary of state or the anti-hero, so to speak, the house speaker. But for us, we don't want to focus on just one single hero because that would be the president. We want to focus on the people whose lives are affected by politics because politics has been dominating in Taiwan. It affects everybody's lives. So we created six fictional characters, three female, three male, to carry on the stories. What are some of your favorite scenes in the first season? There are a lot of scenes that makes me laugh or, or feel touched. But there's this one line that I like the most, which is from a character of the then premiere, uh, one major character in season one. He is uh, kind of the political enemy of the president, but the president appointed him as premier because he used to be a military strongman. So as to take him off the military and he gets promoted to be premier, then the president started to want to talk to the Chinese side. And the premier was opposed to it. And he said, There's nothing that we can talk to with the communist. Let's hear a clip of that right now. Why is that such an interesting line for you? Because looking back from 29 years time, it sounded so ironic. Because those people in, in those days who opposed talking to the communists are exactly the people who are closest to Chinese communists and who are supporting unification with the Chinese communists in Taiwan. So it's so ironic. I think a lot of people watching this show would have a lot of thoughts on that. That's true, because Taiwan has come a real long way since then. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Um, here we are sitting, your first political drama after already a very long and bright career in media. Just to give our listeners an idea, you have over three decades of experience in radio and television. You actually were very much a core part of public television station here in Taiwan. You also helped bring and support that effort up. Your own background, Sylvia, you were at Voice of America for quite a number of years when you lived in the United States. Tell us how some of your background shaped you and your sense of Taiwan's media environment and how it has evolved over the years. 
I went to the United States for graduate studies. I went not because I wanted to go to graduate school, because at the time Taiwan was、um, under martial law, and after I graduated from college, I didn't know what to do. I, there was nothing that I wanted to do. So in the end, I had to leave. I had to do something. So the only choice ahead of me was going to graduate school in the states. So I went, and I remember on my first day, I went to、uh, SUNY Buffalo. On my first day in campus, I was alone there in this vast、uh, campus, and I thought to myself, "I am so free. Nobody's." Bothering me, and I thought I would never go back to Taiwan because when you left, Taiwan was under martial, martial law. It was a police state. That's right. And also, as a woman, I felt、um, even more oppressed than a regular male citizen under those circumstances. And、um, it was in American campus that I decided that I didn't want to go back to Taiwan. But then. Uh, martial law was lifted in 1987, and I started to change my mind. Then, in early 1992, an opportunity came up because I heard that they were setting up public television in Taiwan, and I thought to myself, "Wow, this is a great opportunity for me to go back and help rebuild the TV journalism business." Give us an idea of what the、uh, media landscape was at the time. Was it as overcompetitive as it is now? Were there lots of cable stations or online internet stations back in the early nineties? No, there were only three terrestrial TV stations, all owned by the government.、Uh, one by the party, the other by the provincial government, and the third by the military. That was、uh, the background when. They were setting up public television because、uh, it was about five years into the lifting of martial law, and people were dissatisfied that all the major media were controlled by the ruling party. And so, public television at that time, it was a pioneer. I thought it was, but then when I came back, I found that it was kind of.、Um, Mixture of、uh, new and old, and maybe old, more old than new, because it was set up by the government, and、uh, a lot of people were hired from inside the government or from the old three terrestrial stations that had been under government control. So the ideology there was not something that I had expected. And then, when we fast forward to today,、uh-huh. there is a lot of media out there that is、right. not owned by the government, but we're still seeing a lot of gaps in the United States. They call the media the fourth estate.、Mm-hmm. Here in Taiwan, there isn't that concept. There is that concept, but it's not in practice. Only in some people's mind. We'll ha- also have to go back to where the stories of island nation. Unfolds because in the mid '90s, when the people are asking the government to liberalize their control over the media, they're passed the Cable TV Act. Then the government released a lot of new licenses for cable TV stations, but they did not regulate how many cable stations we need or how many news channels we need. So by the end of the、um, 1990s. 
we already had more than six or seven news channels, 24-hour news channels in Taiwan. It's way too many. And the cable news operators all tend to run a number of stations. And then there was this rise of the internet. So by 2016, the commercial income of the network has surpassed that of all the TV stations put together. My goodness, what does that mean for quality news in Taiwan? That means everybody has to cost down. So for cable news channels, they hire young people with low salaries. They don't do investigative stories. They follow up stories on the internet. They do infotainment a lot. And they tend to be very sensational, and they don't even check the facts. Then what does this mean for citizens and an electorate now that has to decide who their next president is and the shape of their own Congress? Here, we call it the legislative yuan. What does it mean for citizens who need news? I think it's a huge threat to our democracy because we don't have reliable news sources. People see a lot of uh, disinformation spread on the internet. And we've been talking about this fake news and disinformation uh, warfare for the past year since the last election last year in November. I think people are more aware of the problem right now, but we are far from finding a solution. Tell us the importance and the role public television service, PTS, that you were once a president of, uh, plays in Taiwan. I think for creative freedom and also protection of diversity, for cultural diversity, public television should and also always need to play a central role. For instance, when I first came back from the States to work at public television, I started a training program for indigenous people to be journalists. That was unprecedented. Since then, I conducted two more training sessions leading up to the creation of the Indigenous People's Channel. And also uh, a byproduct of that, the, the Hakka Channel. Now public television owns also a new channel that was set up this year, the Taiwanese Channel. I think to promote cultural and linguistic diversity is a very important mission for public television. And also to be at the forefront of maintaining creative freedom and freedom of speech. For instance, I used to be a documentary producer for many years, and it was always my goal to support as diverse a pool of filmmakers as possible, because Taiwan has an amazing pool of cultural diversity. We have so many languages spoken and a very complicated history. For instance, we have uh, more than 15 or 16 indigenous nations recognized by the government and more languages being spoken. And we are thought to be the homeland of the Austronesian people in the world. And then we have the Hakka people and the uh, Taiwanese language-speaking people and the mainlanders coming to Taiwan after 1949. So the cultural diversity 
and the complexity of the histories make things very interesting. And I think it's up to public television to keep that diversity alive and uh, make it visible. Do you think it's getting drowned out by all those cable television and online broadcasts nowadays? Public television in Taiwan has never enjoyed um, great popularity, even though it has. It's it's highly thought of, but in terms of uh, TV rating, uh, it's never been competitive with the commercial stations. I do like PTS myself. I translated for their English language uh broadcasts before, and the people there working with them is just really professional, super nice. I think I've always been a trailblazer, to, to be honest. I think you are. <laughs> uh, because uh, one thing we didn't mention is that um, after the launch of public television in 1998, there was a resolution attached to Public Television Act, which stipulates that public television shall not do daily news for three years, which is against the spirit of public television. So in 1999, I persuaded the then president to let me do daily news. And we started public television daily news in December 1999. That's blazing a trail. In violation of (laughs) the unlawful resolution of public television. Now, I have to say for our listeners, um, you definitely are a pioneer yourself, Sylvia. However, sometimes it's your personal uh, life and things that have happened in it that resonates with me. Uh, You took a case to Taiwan's constitutional court once. This is the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court in Taiwan. Uh, Your son wanted to officially take your last name when you and your husband divorced. What was that about? My son was born an American citizen, and he took my family name because I talked my then-husband into it, accepting it. We had two older children before my son, and every time when a child was born, I said to my husband, can she take, because we had two daughters, can she take my name? And he said no. And then when we had our third child, I said, come on, (laughs) it's my turn. You already have two children taking your last name, and this time I want the child to take my last name. And he said, okay. So my son had uh, his American name with my family name, my surname. And then I took the children back to Taiwan. And the household registration office discovered that my son did not take my husband's surname. So they forced this upon him to change his surname to that of his father's. And I took this case to the Constitutional Court because it violated the Article 7 of our Constitution, uh, right to equality. I love that. Um, what happened next? What happened next was um, that the judges let it sit in the court without hearing the case. And after some time... I heard from my lawyer that one female justice asked her to relay this message to me, saying that they're probably not going to hear the case, so could I withdraw it? I agreed because if my lawyer didn't want to fight and this this 
very illustrious female judge didn't want to fight for the, this precious case. I say precious because a lot of women needed the law to change. For instance, divorced women or women who went through traumatic domestic abuse, who had to run away from their homes with their children, and who needed to have their children take their own family names so their children are better protected and their children did not want to take the father's surnames, could not do so. And they could not come forward because of all the pressures from their families, the families of their husbands, and from the society in general. So I was the only one who was willing to go forward and give my case to the Constitutional Court. And they told me they didn't want to hear it. Now, as I understand, there is a happy ending to this. I read in an interview that you gave in 2008 that uh, civil law changed and it was actually all right by then if a child wanted to take his mother's name. And I take it your son is surnamed Feng like you. It's not as easy as you just described. So divorce is a precondition. And then if uh, within a marriage, I think you have to have a kind of agreement at the beginning of your marriage. It's quite complicated. And I remember that when we were going through this debate, I was at the um, parliament and a woman from the interior ministry said that no one shall break the 5,000-year tradition of paternal lines. And I told her, have you studied biology? Like my surname, Feng, (laughs) dates back to maybe 3,000 years ago to uh, the Zhou Dynasty, said to be uh, descendants of the, the king of Zhou Wenwang. And I may be the 100th generation descendant. So my bloodline of the Feng family is 100 times of one half. And how much is that? That's the kind of paternal bloodline you're talking about. Please be more scientific. But of course, they didn't want to listen to me. So Sylvia, you are not afraid to challenge 5,000 years of patriarchal tradition. You are not afraid to challenge Taiwan's highest court. You willingly try and successfully create a public service television station in Taiwan. You know, next, I'm going to ask you about the China factor and media. Okay. Hey, we're a young media startup called Ghost Island Media. To get every episode of The Taiwan Take, just hit subscribe on your podcast app. Do you have a tip for us? For news tips, tweet at us at Ghost Island Me. For dollar tips, we take those too. Send them to us on patreon.com slash Taiwan. Back to our interview with Sylvia Fung. Right. So I'm going to ask a few of the questions that may be more uh, difficult in this talking about a political drama. Now, you talked about some challenges, funding. You talked about uh, how investment in this particular show was difficult. Why is that? 
I think the long history of martial law, which lasted about 38 years in Taiwan, has a lasting impact on the Taiwanese collective consciousness. A lot of people have fear in their hearts about anything political. So trying to make a political drama would be a no-no thing for a lot of people in the business. And on top of that, in recent years, we've been seeing the China factor in Taiwanese film and television. A lot of talents have been drawn to the Chinese market. They offer better pay, more opportunities to produce. And therefore, people are afraid that if they participate in this project, they would be excluded or punished in the Chinese market. And also for investors, they would try to steer away from this kind of venture so as not to be labeled, as not to be affected if they have business in China. You fight to get more programming on in Taiwan history, indigenous languages, Hakka. You're launching the first political drama. How does this work nowadays when the China factor looms so big? I think nowhere in the world does it loom bigger than in Taiwan, the China factor. And um, we all know, I and I've seen the statement that if you work in the Chinese market, you're asked to sign a statement saying that you will not support anything they deem as pro-Taiwan independence. Otherwise, you will be punished heavily. So finding money is difficult because investors are afraid. Uh, Finding the crew is difficult and finding actors is difficult. That we all accept because from the very beginning, we have ruled out selling the show to the Chinese market. Um, But right now, as we are in the phase of trying to get on platforms, again, we're facing similar difficulties because even for domestic operators, they think it's politically sensitive. So even though the show is ready, they won't show it before the election, which is to be held on January 11th. It's all been very difficult. I have to say no drama production has encountered so many, as many difficulties as we have. That sounds like other industries as well, not just the entertainment industry. Since this is the first attempt at making a political drama, people tend to think that maybe this is kind of an experiment. I'll wait and see how you guys do. So after maybe um, the launch of the first season, I think people will change their mind because it's quite entertaining. According to reaction from our focus groups, They liked it and enjoyed it. They laughed a lot, especially in Kaohsiung. You know, people in Kaohsiung are more outspoken and and more upfront about uh, how they feel. We had about 20, almost 30 people in the room, and they laughed throughout the show. They laughed all the time, and they laughed very loud. It was very satisfactory for producers to watch that. (laughs) So when will Island Nation launch it? is the first season. There will be 10 episodes and they're 60 minutes long, right? Mm -hmm, Right. Um, I think domestically in Taiwan, it will be launched in February. We haven't signed a contract yet, so I can't name the station. 
but uh, hopefully audience will be watching it. Also, hopefully in sync on inter- international platforms as well. We're talking to several OTT operators right now. So over the top yes. operators. Mm-hmm. So are there different challenges when you look at potential OTT platforms versus the terrestrial one here in Taiwan? I can quote one of the buyers from um, a major OTT platform who, after seeing all 10 episodes... Which I heard is unprecedented for potential buyers looking at an episode. Given the fact that we're a political drama from Taiwan, I guess... He shared his thoughts with us. He said, uh, I find it very interesting and entertaining. And uh, even though I don't understand Taiwanese history, I think I've gotten to understand it a little bit more after seeing your show. Particularly, some of the actors performed really well, and that was impressive. So that was kind of satisfactory, I think, for us to hear this from a a foreign professional who doesn't really understand Taiwanese politics. As the producer of this show, which overseas audience do you think this show will resonate more with? Japan, United States, Western Europe, Russia? I I, I don't know. Well, I have to be frank. This is the first time we're doing this. So we're not quite sure who our audiences are, where they are, and who they would be like. But I would think that uh, for Japanese audiences, they would be interested in Taiwanese, recent Taiwanese political history because um, what happens in Taiwan affects Japan a lot. Likewise, what happens in Japan affects Taiwan a lot as well. And also, I think people in the world who would pay attention to what has been happening in Hong Kong would be interested in what has been happening in Taiwan. This democracy is almost a miracle in the world. And uh, we started our story from the beginning of this miracle. I think people who would be interested in an emerging, a difficult democracy who you can almost call a success story for 30 years without bloodshedding, a peaceful transformation from a dictatorship to a democracy. That kind of story, I think, would appeal to a lot of people in the world, even though I don't know where they are. I have an American engineer friend from California. He recently asked me what I've been doing. I said, I've been producing this political drama. He said, will it be available in America? I'd love to watch it. Right. That sounds awesome. Oh, actually, I wanted to ask you, there's been a lot of comparisons uh, island nation with political drama House of Cards. There's also been a comparison with Australia's Secret City. Do you think those comparisons are valid? In that they all deal with uh, political stories. Um, but we have a totally different tone. For instance, House of Cards is quite dark. Everybody in the House of Cards is a bad person. <laughs> You can almost say that. It's, well it's said, very like heavy. Yeah. Um, Secret City is quite entertaining as well. And I was amazed that when they released it in 2016, the China factor in Australia had not set alarm yet. I think what's amazing about Secret City is that it has this foresight about international politics. 
But for island nation, since I just talked about so much fear in people's hearts about political stories, and Taiwan being a very divided nation in terms of people's、um, values and political ideas. For instance, some people are pro-independence, some people are pro-unification, and most people are somewhere in between. And when we talk about these national identity issues, people are always very vehement and very divided. So we don't want to do a very heavy-handed story. We want it to be light-hearted. We want to bring everybody together. Thinking that these are the days that we've been through, these are the memories and the stories that we collectively experienced. So there is no clear-cut bad people in the story. Everybody is、uh, three-dimensional. They have their dark sides. They have their gray areas. They also have a personal, more personable side to their character. Including the premier character that I just talked about, we actually had a lot of discussion about the characterization of this role. In the end, we decided that we didn't want to cast him as enemy of democracy. We wanted to cast him as a man who was a true believer of his own values. Wow, that's really interesting. I need to go back and look at that episode. Uh, this China factor has gotten so big. Your island nation has faced it. This year's Golden Horse has faced it. I mean, Golden Horse is the Chinese Oscars. It's been around since 1962. Anybody who is anybody in the overseas—Chinese, Asian, Taiwanese, Malaysian, Hong Kong, what have you—community—if they're a creative artist and. A actor, a producer, a filmmaker, a soundtrack writer—they all want to be at the Golden Horse. What happened this year? I think the Chinese government has ordered the、uh, the Chinese film industry people to boycott Golden Horse because last year, as you all know, a Taiwanese filmmaker who was awarded the best documentary, director Fu Yu. Said on stage that she supported Taiwan Taiwanese democracy and something like that, and outraged the Chinese government. They ordered the people to express、uh, their disapproval of what Fu Yu said on stage. I witnessed that because I was at the ceremony, and I saw a Chinese actor who was awarded best actor. I think said that Taiwan was part of China. I mean, to the displeasure of the Taiwanese audience, I think it was、uh, really offensive for a guest to be awarded a very enviable prize to say that on stage. But they all did that, and then later on, I found that、uh, they were instructed to do so, and I felt sorry for them. China Factor also has huge influence in Hollywood as well. People have been talking about it a lot, right? Offending China is not safe at all these days、because、in any part of the world because there's a commercial component. That's right, because they have put money in so many entertainment businesses, especially in Hollywood. Doesn't this diminish creativity in the arts? Of course, it does. You've censored yourself. 
it has tremendous impact on Taiwan. People have been self-censoring their own stories for a long time now, for more than 10 years. For instance, if you make a drama that you want to sell to China, then you make sure that no children are born out of wedlock in your stories, stuff like that. Whatever they dislike, they will not approve by their censorship system, will not appear in your story. And does that not affect your creative freedom? Of course it does. And it has been do it has been so for as long as I know, for almost two decades now. Especially after China's Da Guo Jieqi, the emergence of the huge country, after the uh, 208 Olympics, Beijing Olympics, this has been very obvious. I want you to not be yourself with this next question. What would you say or give advice on to Chinese actors or even just 5,000 years of Chinese arts going forward? I think I only have things to say to Taiwanese um, artists. Be brave. Use your creative freedom to the full because it's really precious. And I feel for the Chinese artists because they don't have this kind of freedom. And I think it's um, a loss for the Chinese film industry, not for Taiwan, that the Chinese filmmakers are not allowed to participate in Taiwanese Golden Horse Film Festival because it's in Taiwan that the greatest Chinese films are lauded, are being awarded, are being shown, whereas a lot of good Chinese films are not allowed to be shown in, in China. So I feel for them, but... Uh, what c can I say to them? Be brave and be locked up in jail? I cannot say that to them. I only can say to my Taiwanese compatriots that you guys have to exercise your creative freedom and do as much as you can. And that's why we're making Island Nation. I won't say it's a perfect work, but we try as hard as possible to make it work to make it entertaining, to tell our stories while we still have this freedom. Sylvia, so one last question. What's going to happen in season two? We're working on the stories. Uh, we're developing the scripts right now. In season two, we'll cover in 95 and 96, the uh, Taiwan Strait Crisis, when China ex uh, had the... Uh, Live-fire missiles. Live-fire missiles, seven military exercise from 95 to 96, directed, aiming at uh, disrupting Taiwanese uh, election. And in 96, we had our first popular election of the president. And that was, that was a huge, huge victory for the people of Taiwan. And we've been through a lot of threats so season two will be even more entertaining. Stay tuned. Before we go, how can we find Island Nation? We don't have an English fan page yet, but if you go to Facebook and you key in Island Nation, you can find our fan page and there are a lot of trailers in it. And we also just released a very interesting MV and uh, I think over 100 thousand people watched it in two days 
So we'll end the show with the theme song of Island Nation. Sylvia Fung, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. I'm J.R. Wu, and this has been The Taiwan Take. This has been a Ghost Island Media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. This episode was produced and edited by me, Emily Waiwu. Our researchers are Sam Robbins and Yu Chen Lai. Additional production support by Allison Chan. Brand design by Thomas Lee. Catch you next time. Bye. Sing